0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Let's be honest. When we talk about parenting, we're often talking about mothering. Most of the research on raising kids is based on mothers. Mothers in weird cultures at that. And by weird, I mean the acronym, Western, Educated, Industrial, Rich, and Democratic countries. But of course, humans are in a small group of animals where the fathers play a large role in how our children are raised. This means we need to broaden our work, our discussions, and our mindsets around parenting if we're going to truly understand it. As such, this is the beginning of my fatherhood series, where I will be welcoming researchers who focused on fathers in their work. They're more than you'd think, and this is just the beginning of what I hope to cover. And starting us off is the researcher who comes to most minds when we think of research on fathering, Dr. Lee Gettler. So this is the beginning of a two-part interview covering just a small fraction of his research which has advanced our knowledge on fathering across cultures and from a variety of lenses. So here is for all the fathers out there. I am incredibly pleased to have with me today Dr. Lee Gettler. He is an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame where he directs the Hormones, Health and Human Behavior Lab. His research has focused a lot on fatherhood, specifically on the way in which men's hormonal physiology responds to such major life transitions. He also explores the ways in which humans' neuroendocrine systems accommodate the demands of new parenthood, such as childcare, sleep dynamics, and psychosocial stress. With projects ongoing around the world, he is researching larger questions, including the psychobiology of motherhood and fatherhood, parents' physical and mental health, and child growth and development. He's the recipient of the 2020 Michael A. Little Early Career Award from the Human Biology Association. Pardon me. <coughs> oh, wow. All right. Sorry babe. Sorry, I say that babe for my husband to listen, not you. Oh my that's- god, that's really awkward. Um, <laughs> do that again. <laughs> Sorry about that. No worries. All right. With projects ongoing around the world, he is researching larger questions, including the psychobiology of motherhood and fatherhood, parents' physical and mental health, and child growth and development. He is the recipient of the 2020 Michael A. Little Early Career Award from the Human Biology Association. You will also know his name as one who helped co-create the term breast sleeping. Thank you so much for being here, Lee. This is such a joy.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Tracy. I know we were... Emailing for a while to try to get this set up. So I'm glad we could make it work. Happy to oh, be here.
0: Well, your work on fatherhood is uh, second to none. When I told people I was doing a series on fatherhood, it was everyone. Well, you do have Lee Gettler, right? Have you reached out to Lee Gettler? <laughs> I felt like putting a caveat in anyone I spoke to was, I'm doing fatherhood. Yes, I've already asked Lee Gettler. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's leave that. So I am thrilled to have you here. So before we do start digging in to the wealth of research that you have on fatherhood, of which we will take a little sliver off the top probably because that's all we'll have time for. How did you get started on studying fatherhood of all things?
1: Have I told you the backstory to this at all? Did we email about this a little bit? Because um, when I saw the, this question no. and your, um, your interest, I, I thought maybe I had prefaced this at some point. So um, I'll try to give the the short version of this, although uh, Jim McKenna may make an appearance in this story somewhere. And I know he was just on your show recently. And of course he and I worked really closely together, um, including on the, the concept of breast sleeping, but okay. So going back to high school, I went to high school and I grew up in Minnesota and in high school, my friends and I were all, I was a cross country runner. My friends were tennis players. We were kind of just skinny adolescents and we at at lunchtime we would sit around our cafeteria table and talk about how much bigger and stronger our dads were than we were and how if any of us ever got into a fight with our dads how badly we would lose and just these conversations that we would have around the lunchroom table you would think that we would kind of have gone through this pretty quickly but we would talk about it a lot and we ended up coming up with this idea that we called the theory of man strength, which was that when you transition to fatherhood, uh, whether it was because you were carrying around your kids or whatever tasks you were doing, you got like the Popeye forearms and like a barrel chest. And so honestly, I was, I ended up, I went to Notre Dame as an undergraduate, which is where I'm at now as faculty. And I got placed into an anthropology class I had no idea what anthropology was. Again, I grew up in rural Minnesota. It's just not something that was kind of on my radar. And I fell in love with anthropology. But then as a sophomore, um, I kind of begged and pleaded my way into a a class with Dr. Augustine Fuentes. And that was an advanced course. But one of the things that we talked about in that class was uh, New World Monkey Fathers, and they're one of the few other primate species, like humans, where fathers are really involved with taking care of their young. And there had been some really good early work on hormonal changes in marmoset dads and titi monkey dads, tamarind dads. And so I became really interested in that. But part of it was motivated by this backstory of me being interested in what happened to men when they became fathers because of these conversations I would have with my high school friends. Um, and I'm really fortunate to still be close to that group of of guys from high school. And they still, almost every time I see them, they still joke with me that I built my entire career off of um, our theory of man strength uh, from high school. But I went to Augustine. I was taking this class with him as a sophomore. I got really excited about what was potentially happening with human dads or human men when they became dads physiologically and I ended up doing some directed readings with Augustine and with Jim McKenna when I was an undergrad that were focused on this topic. I wrote one of the projects that Augustine had me do was writing up kind of a mock NSF grant proposal. And I wrote it about thinking about emotional intimacy between um, men and their partners during the partner's pregnancy and whether that would be related to the hormonal changes that men might experience as they transition to parenthood. And Augustine, you know, said something like, this is like, this is a fundable idea. You have to go to graduate school and study this. And I'm like, I'm not going to get a PhD. Um, you're you're kind of crazy Famous
0: last words. <laughs> I know.
1: Um, and so anyway, that idea, I, I'd been thinking about this for a long time. And actually, funny enough, um, when I was an undergraduate it was around the time that Dr. Peter Gray, who's at UNLV, who's another kind of leading researcher whose work laid a lot of the groundwork for the questions that I've asked with biology of fatherhood, the biology of fatherhood. He was at Harvard as a grad student at that time. And so I started to learn about his work and then I got kind of sad because someone had already started to study this question, not really understanding how many questions were out there to be explored. Anyway, I ended up teaching middle school for a year after I graduated from college. Um, that didn't go very well, mostly because I was not very mature at the time. And then I ended up working in business for a little while, but I was still in touch with Jim McKenna. And I started to think that maybe I wanted to go back to graduate school. I think Jim was really worried that I was just kind of floundering in life. And so I was grasping at straws. And so he started sending me lots of readings to do and kind of putting me through my paces, I think, to see how serious I was about, You know, becoming an academic. And it was out of those conversations that I ended up coming back to Notre Dame and running his sleep lab for a year. And so that's where my collaboration with Jim really emerged from. He and I were close from when I was an undergraduate. But then I came back and I was really able to kind of immerse myself in the mother infant sleep and breastfeeding work with him that we, you know, have continued to this day. And then when I went to apply to graduate school, I applied based on the idea of of thinking about the biology of fatherhood from kind of an evolutionary and biocultural perspective. And then I ran with that ever since.
0: So... I will say, I'm glad you brought up Jim, because he did ask me to tell you, I have it in email here when he knew you were coming on because what you, you gave him some credit here, but I don't think you gave him all the credit that he'd actually like, because okay. what he said is that, you know, you have to tell him that his favorite former professor friend and mentor, Professor McKenna, not only says hello, but that Professor McKenna said for me, you, Tracy, to remind him, Lee, how he, me, taught him everything he knows. So do we give Jim that credit there? You, you've you learned everything from Jim.
1: Well, I'm sure that now that you've had some interactions with Jim, I'm sure you know that that was tongue in cheek and he's saying oh, it just, absolutely. To, just to get under my skin a little bit. Um,
0: no, no, I he- will say this. Jim speaks so highly of you. It is. I mean, I honestly wish there was someone in my life that spoke as highly of me as Jim speaks of you in your work. So I know that's tongue in cheek. And, um, but to have a mentor like Jim is helpful.
1: You, I, I cannot begin to describe how important Jim has been to me professionally and personally. Um, so he's saying that tongue in cheek, but like, <laughs> When I, when I came back here to work for Jim to be the associate director of his lab, I lived with Jim and his wife for about nine months. And that was actually uh, Joanne. Uh, his wife was another very important uh, person to me and my, my family here. That was actually, jo- I kept coming over to their house to like, eat meals and watch TV. And Joanne eventually said like, I don't, I think Lee maybe would be better off just staying with us. And so they're both incredibly generous and kind um, and both brilliant scholars in their own right. Joanne is an archeologist, yeah. but you know, I know people and anytime people have seen Jim and I interact, they then know how close we are. And obviously lots of people in anthropology know that. Um, but more broadly, people just know us from working together, but he really is, um, you know, one of my closest friends. He's one of my most important mentors. He officiated my wedding. So um, he and I, he's like a pseudo, you know, grandparent to my children. So he, he and I are incredibly close. And I, I met him in an elevator. I don't know if he told you that story. No, but he you didn't. Yeah, I was on my <laughs> way up to the anthropology department to see somebody else, a different faculty member. And he just started talking to me because Jim is so outgoing and social. And he, he thought I, he thought I had been in one of his classes and I said, no, I've I've never had a class with you, Professor McKenna, but I know who you are because everyone knows who Jim is. And we just started talking and then I just started coming to his office hours and visiting him and we became friends. I actually never took a formal class with him in college. Um, we just kind of developed this friendship independently of that. But, um, Meeting him in that elevator and him starting to talk to me probably changed the entire trajectory of my life, really. So uh, I am very grateful to him.
0: That is incredible. Yeah, I had not heard that. I heard that he had officiated your wedding. I heard that you lived with them. I knew, but (laughs) I had no idea that it started. And I had no idea you didn't take a class with him. I knew you taught a class. I heard about your combined teaching class together, which I think sounds incredible. And I'm incredibly jealous of all the undergrads that got to take a class that was, you know, Jim on mothering and you on fathering there, it's, I yeah. hope they appreciate it. I hope if you're listening and you took that, I hope you take it back and have appreciated what you gleaned from that.
1: Yeah. You know, I, that was it. that was such a fun semester. My son, my oldest, um, who's seven now was a baby then. So we got to bring him in and, you know, have him be our, our example of a, a human infant. And it really helped the students, I was pretty early in my career as a professor then, um, and wasn't as experienced teaching wise. And I think it really actually bringing the baby into the classroom, helped the students kind of relax a little bit. And they, they then asked me lots of personal questions about parenting and, you know, what that transition has been like and things. But, um, Jim and I only got to teach that class once together, um, for a bunch of logistical reasons. And then, um, you know, Jim retired and, and moved out to the West coast where his, his, son and his family is. So we miss him dearly here, but I wish we would have gotten to teach that class more together.
0: You'll just have to convince him to come back for a semester and do it just, you know, on the fly there. Just, I'm sure you've got all your notes and everything ready to go again. So it's, um, or you could come up here, teach it in Canada. I'll just go as a student somewhere. Just each okay. of you take us, you know, cause he's really semi-retired. I don't think we can call him retired with all that he's got going yeah. on. He I, I retired
1: on. from Notre Dame and <laughs> moved to Santa Clara, and is continuing to be incredibly active, as you said, in all the things that he does. His important scholarly work, but also giving lots of talks and pediatric grand rounds and things. He does joke that he's going to come. Basically, I lived with Jim and Joanne for you know a year. Almost, and he jokes he's going to come back and teach at Notre Dame, but just live with us here. So you
0: get to return the favor. There you go. He can watch TV and eat your meals and do it all. Um, I love that. And I love that you guys have such a close relationship because it is so lovely to see in the academic world two people that are just so. In sync with their research and everything. So it is incredible. Uh, but I want to get to your work because we all know Jim's work on this, and yours is slightly different because of your um, man strength theory here <laughs> going on. So now you're, I, I want to start with the research on testosterone, which sure. is possibly like some of the biggest stuff you've done and really incredibly mind blowing, actually, when it started to, to be honest for me, I mean, at least I can't speak to everyone. But you look at testosterone and fathers and that transition to fatherhood. And, you know, I know there's a lot of work on kind of this maternal transition to motherhood, right? How mother's physiology shifts and stuff. But this was really one of the paramount things that happens with Men. So, as their transition here. So, are you able to kind of go over for us? And I say this, and I realize you could talk for probably five hours or more on this alone, but give kind of a not too succinct, but an overview of what is it that happens to men at this physiological level as they transition into fatherhood?
1: Sure. And Trace, you can kind of guide me in terms of how much maybe you want me to talk about kind of cross-species perspectives and and some of the work from other species that laid the groundwork for kind of why you would ask these questions in humans. But a lot of my work, particularly on this topic related to the transition to fatherhood, uh, has been in Cebu City in the Philippines. And Cebu is the second largest metropolitan area in the Philippines. But it's also the home to a very uh, large, long-running birth cohort study that began in the early 80s. And so um, the men, the fathers that I study, and actually the men that we track through this study more broadly are about the same age as I am. They were born in 1983 and 84. But in that year, they were enrolled when they were in utero um, along with their mothers. And so that study, you know, we're We're working thirty years later on this project, but it began as a study of mother infant health and well-being and they enrolled about thirty three hundred pregnant women um, in eighty three and eighty four and then subsequent to that, obviously about half the babies are boys and half are girls and um those kids have were followed throughout childhood and into adolescence and then in adulthood um, they kind of the the project took two different Strands and they've kind of separated off, and I kind of work on the the side of it that's um, focused on men's behavior and health and physiology. But there's an important part of the reason I want to preface that is that before I started working on this, there had been some really Im- important cross-sectional work, so kind of like a snapshot in time, particularly from someone I mentioned already, Dr. Peter Gray, and Peter had as an anthropologist had gone to different cultural settings around the world. He had started by working in Boston and then he also worked um, with different cultural groups in um, central Africa, Eastern and Eastern Africa, and then later in, in China. But he looked at, if you look at men's testosterone in relationship to whether they're single nonfathers, married or partnered nonfathers, or married and partnered fathers, um, how does men's testosterone vary by those categories? Finding that in the u s um, it was married married men, including nonfathers and fathers that tended to have lower testosterone than single non-fathers. He found a similar pattern in China. And then he found some interesting variation in um, the Arial and Kenyan Swahili men in in um, parts of Africa where depending on whether um, polygyny was kind of culturally sanctioned in the cultural group, you saw some differences in, in how these patterns played out with testosterone and, and partnering in men's fathering status. And so this opened up really important questions about, you know, that we're still exploring now in terms of cultural variation in these patterns, which I'm sure we can talk about. But one of the things that wasn't clear for a setting like the United States was, is it that lower testosterone men are more likely to become married or become married fathers? Or is there something about the transition to parenthood and marriage that's leading testosterone to go down? And to do that, you obviously needed a longitudinal study. And so I was very fortunate that as a graduate student, um, I got to work with Chris Kazawa, who was connected to this project in the Philippines. And so we were able to look at a large group of men, um, about 465 men who were single non-fathers when they were 21. And then we followed them up five years later and a, a meaningful chunk of them had remained single non-fathers. Some had becoming become, become partnered non-fathers and some had become um, newly partnered new fathers. And essentially looking at how their testosterone changed over that time period the men who stay single nonfathers their testosterone stays about the same men who are partnered nonfathers they experience kind of a uh, about a 10% decline in testosterone on average but kind of intermediate and then on the far if you i'm thinking about my graph but if you that the group that experienced the largest decline were the uh, partnered fathers, the men who had gone from being single non-fathers to transitioning to partnered fatherhood. um, And their testosterone declined on average about 25%. And so it's a very, these are men in their twenties. So they're kind of in their reproductive prime. So that's a very biologically meaningful change in testosterone. And if you looked at studies of aging and testosterone change in the United States, that's probably about the equivalent of what you see in terms of like two decades of an age-based effect on testosterone, and we're seeing it as it relates to these life history transitions. And so that was a major that w- that was really the first longitudinal study um, a particularly a large study that had shown that that kind of change in testosterone and the other thing that we found was that among the guys who were single non-fathers when they were twenty one, they were actually if they had higher testosterone when they were single non-fathers, they were more likely to become partnered and partnered fathers five years later. So we had these kind of paired sets of findings that um, showed that it was higher testosterone, not lower testosterone that was in this setting, making men more likely to become, or were linked statistically to their likelihood of becoming a partnered father. And then once men, men transitioned um, to those, Roles, their testosterone was declining uh, fairly substantially in terms of kind of a biological effect. And if they were more, more involved with childcare, so if they were reporting that they were spending more time with their kids on a day to day basis and particularly doing kind of more hands on type childcare activities, um, their testosterone was lower if they were in the highest kind of categories of how much childcare they were doing compared to men who were reporting not doing that childcare. Um, and the last thing, and then I can um, see where you wanna go in terms of what questions we might explore next. Um, Cebu and, and the Philippines more generally um, was a really rich cultural context to ask these questions. And one of the things that I think we'll talk about later is the way we have looked used these longitudinal data, to think about what men were ex- experiencing when they were young kids and how that relates to the type of father they become in adulthood. But what we know, because of these, this multi-generational study is the their dads in the early 80s and 90s really were doing very little childcare on average. There were some dads who were more involved, but typically they were not doing very much childcare. And there's been a, a shift pretty similar to what you've seen in the United States in terms of how much um, childcare men are doing, where more men are doing kind of a, what I would call a meaningful amount of childcare per day now, but we still have a pretty nice range of variation where if you were interested in the types of questions that i'm interested in for in terms of the psychobiology of fatherhood and how that relates to men's role and roles in families this was actually a good cultural context to go ask those questions because there was this kind of emerging variation in the way men were um, engaging as fathers
0: i find it fascinating that you found that the higher testosterone predicted the likelihood of becoming a father, because I mean, it just feels like that perfect finding to say, no, 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 this drop has nothing to do with initially low levels or someone who naturally might decline. Um, But what is it about the higher speculating, the higher testosterone that might lead to more likelihood of, you know, not just becoming a father, because we could understand that at a the sexual biological level, but about partnering and fathering?
1: So there's a couple of ways that I I would like to think about that. One is that these, so these guys are in their twenties and their early twenties, particularly when we're thinking about that. And most of their partners are in that same age range. They're tending to partner with with, uh, in our case, women that are um, similar in age. And so, you know, the the context, the kind of cultural context of masculinity in the Philippines shares some overlap with um, kind of Latino concepts of, of machismo. That's not really a term that's used all that much um, in the Philippines, but there's some similarities in terms of cultural concepts of masculinity in part because the Philippines was A Spanish colony for so long. Um, But I think, I mean, one of the things that we know that, you know, on average, testosterone is helping to facilitate in humans and in other species is kind of motivation for competition, competition with other males, competition for resources, pursuit of status. And so I think um, in Cebu, particularly when men are in their 20s, um and probably even as they get older those are kind of components of what i think women in the, those age demographics are likely to be attracted to and that will likely help them gain status and kind of social capital that may help them then transition to becoming married and fathers because another thing about the philippines specifically is it's a heavily catholic country where um you know the transition to marriage and, and having children is actually another core kind of component of the kind of masculine ideal in terms of what how men see themselves in terms of their transition to you know um, as a means of demonstrating virility and masculinity. Right. So I think it it fits well within a narrative of for the how old the men were when this was going on when we were studying them and within the cultural context of kind of what may make men attractive to women and how that might lead to um, the transition to marriage and fatherhood in this specific cultural context. I think there's actually some interesting questions to be asked about if you were looking at men in the United States um, where divorce is more common here and increasingly, Couples are living together and not necessarily getting married. Um, And so you may get men and women who are cycling through multiple serious relationships across adulthood. I think there's some interesting questions to be asked about whether higher testosterone or lower testosterone might lead men to be more likely to enter relationships at different stages of life. Um, You know, the things that... um, men and women find attractive can shift over as, as we age through time, right? And so it might be that there's a different kind of biological profile of attractiveness later in life than, than in men's early 20s. And I think cultural context is also really important for that.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question was, you know, these cultural differences. Do we find the same outcomes? I mean, with not only the drop in testosterone, but also kind of this, the pre-findings of what testosterone is beforehand across other cultural contract constructs, pardon me, um, or contexts that uh, are, are going on there.
1: So the finding that lower testosterone in fathers tends to be linked with more involvement with childcare, that is actually replicated fairly well across a diverse number of contexts. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about um, some really nice work that's been done by folks like uh, Dr. Darby Saxby and Dr. Robin Edelstein here in the US Um, and then um, Dr. Ruth Feldman's lab in Israel. But so we have our findings in the Philippines. Um, We, our team has done some work here locally in the South Bend, Indiana community that has linked lower testosterone in dads to more childcare. Um, Darby and Robin's work, um, which was conduct- a longitudinal study that they did in Michigan, found that men whose testosterone goes down more during their partner's pregnancy are then involved more with childcare um, when their, their infants arrive. And uh, Ruth's lab in Israel has found um, that men with lower testosterone, fathers with lower testosterone, um, are more kind of sensitive and attentive to kind of infant cues when they're interacting in the lab with them. So that finding, the finding linking lower testosterone to more hands-on and and I think sensitive engagement in childcare has been found across a pretty diverse range of cultural contexts. Um, one of the things that I would point out about that, that I think is really important to this conversation and is important to me and fascinating to me as an anthropologist is the fact that Those are all cultural contexts or at least populations um, within broader societies where that hands-on engagement and that kind of sensitive nurturing caregiving is probably particularly culturally valued as a role for fathers. So one of the things that um, I'd love to talk about is the fact that that's not the role that fathers play uh, in all societies. And in many societies, that's actually not the domain kind of a father's fathers do, really important things for families and for communities, but it it's not always that kind of sensing sensitive nurture and engagement that's increasingly valued in in places like the United States. But in in Darby, again, Dr. Darby Saxby and Dr. Robin Edelstein's um, longitudinal study in the US, so again, what they're finding they're they're tracking men's testosterone through their partner's pregnancies. And the more it goes down, so you get variation between men and how much their testosterone is changing across their partner's pregnancy in this study in the US. But the more it goes down, the more infant care they're doing, the more their partners feel supported by them. Um, And so in that case, we're seeing the biological changes kind of uh, preceding the behavior. And in a study that one of my, someone who used to be in my lab as a postdoctoral researcher, Dr. Patty Quo, who's now at the University of Nebraska. Um, she worked with me on a project here where we recruited men directly from the birthing unit of a local hospital. Um, and part of what we were interested in is we collected samples uh, from them before their babies were born. And then, or actually, well, let me backtrack there for a second. We collected samples from them after the babies were born, but before they held them for the first time. And then after they were done holding them for the first time 30 minutes later. So we were really interested in how their bodies were kind of immediately responding to these first interactions with their infants. But we also um, followed up with them a few months later to look at how these hormonal changes in these kind of acute moments around birth might be related to aspects of their parenting and bonding later. And uh, in a paper that Patty led, we found that men whose men whose testosterone was lower um, right around the time of their, their babies being born, those first two days, they were more involved with childcare months later. So pretty similar to the pattern that Darby and Robin found. Um, and it was diverse types of care. it was it was hands- on, diaper changing, direct caregiving. Um, it was play. and it was also, um, what we'd call indirect caregiving, but basically like, are you arranging babysitting? Are you buying groceries and preparing food for the infant? So doing things for your baby that um, are required, but don't rec- don't Im- um, involve direct interaction. So we found this link between lower testosterone and that kind of care um, in a kind of a diverse range of areas.
0: So do you think it could go the other way though? Because it sounds like most of the findings are saying that that shift has to happen before you see that type of care, but can there be kind of a fake it till you make it kind of thing there where someone who may not feel that way is able to kind of start, start acting that way and then see that drop in testosterone afterwards?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. So there's some really interesting and I have to, I have to credit Dr. Um, Sorry, Van Anders who has done some really important work in this area and and is a um, research giant in terms of thinking about um, gender and sexuality and psychobiology. But um, you know, years ago I was at Michigan when, when uh, sorry, was still there and she, I was coming from anthropology where, in terms of particularly engaging with my colleagues in cultural anthropology, they're much more comfortable with the idea that the social transition to something like marriage or fatherhood could affect biology. And they're less comfortable with the idea that those biological changes are driving men's behavior. And in psychology, I think it's the, it's the reverse. And this is what, um, Dr. Van Anders was. Uh, we were having a great conversation, but she was explaining this to me that it she had she had had so much pushback in her career in terms of the idea that social context would affect the not only the kind of profiles of of these hormones, but also the the, the kind of moderate the links between physiology and behavior. So for me, I don't think it's one or the other. I actually think that the transition to fatherhood. So we seem to be getting indications that there are changes that are happening before men, you know, before the baby arrives, which I don't find surprising at all. um, Particularly for men who are in a committed relationship with a partner that they're, you know, potentially watching go through these substantial um, changes. And if they're committed to their role as fathers, it would make perfect sense to me that that would be linked to some biological changes that that might then have, behavioral kind of downstream behavioral effects. But I also think that the continued social roles that men are playing as fathers is almost certainly having some effect on the physiology. And usually if you see, you know, if I was giving uh, my, pardon me, PowerPoint talk on this, I usually have, I, I always have this figure that has these like concentric circles and what I set up with it is, okay, so some men may experience a decline in testosterone, and this leads them to become more involved fathers, which then feeds back to the the very physiology that's affecting the behavior in the first place. Or some men transition to fatherhood, they become involved fathers, and that precedes their decline in testosterone, which then can have this effect of, um, you know, in a feedback loop of, of helping to kind of catalyze further involvement. And so I, I think of it as a feedback loop where the two things are probably related to one another. And I think intuitively from both, uh, from a social, psychobiological, and evolutionary perspective, um, that makes sense to me. And it's hard for me to imagine that it would just be a one-way street.
0: I'm with you. To me, it feels like you could get dropped in anywhere in that cycle. And that's, you know, whether you get dropped in on the side where your physiology shifts first, or you get dropped in on the side where you're in this social context that creates this, that would make the most sense to me. So with that, how long does this drop happen? Because as you said, you're looking at, you know, the equivalent of kind of two decades of a drop, I can't imagine that it doesn't go back. Up again at a certain point to allow for that age-related transition to happen later?
1: Yes, we do not. So I can talk about what we know from our work in the Philippines, because we have now, so we have testosterone data from those men when they are 21, 26, and about 30 or 31. And so in our initial study, we're looking at them between ages 21 and 26, and this is actually an area I'm going to talk a little bit about something that that I think kind of potentially differs somewhat from what um, Darby and Robin found in the United States, where they're showing this this change over the course of pregnancy. Um, for us, in the for what we found in the Philippines, we found this massive drop for men who had newborns. So those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. But to me, there's some hints there that unsurprisingly, the timing of those changes might differ by cultural context, which I think is a really interesting question in and of itself. But what we found is men who have newborns at home, their change is, is really, really large. I mean, you're talking almost, you know, it's a small group of men, but it's almost half <laughs> their testosterone dropping by like 50%. And Then as you look at men whose youngest child is six months old, one year old, two years old, there's more of like a J-shaped curve there where their testosterone looks like it's coming back up. And in our data, again, when men are in their mid-20s, it never gets quite back on average to where it was. But it certainly creeps back up as their, their babies are moving into toddlerhood. And then what we also see is that for the dads who had had another child, their testosterone is just as low. So at this stage, it looks like men's testosterone in the Philippines goes down dramatically when they transition to fatherhood, starts to creep back up as their babies become toddlers. And then if they have another baby, it goes back down again. But it looks a little different. That, that effect is not nearly as strong when they're in their 30s. And their testosterone's gone down somewhat with age by the time they get there. And so part of my answer is it doesn't look like a permanent effect in that it's transient in the sense that on average, it looks like it lasts a couple of years. This also makes sense evolutionarily, right? It, it The way that humans and hominins and you know primates in the distant past reproduced. It's not evolutionarily advantageous to have one, one baby and then ramp your testosterone all the way down. If that's doing something important in terms of, um, your kind of motivation to have another child or to, you know, potentially compete for resources that might facilitate that or, or facilitate the success of your family, things like that. Um, when, when men get into their thirties, I don't think we have a very good idea of what it looks like what these patterns look like for men who are becoming fathers when they're older or having, you know, subsequent children when they're in their 30s or 40s, which is, of course, very common in settings like the United States and elsewhere around the world. Um, So there's lots of good questions that remain to be asked. I mean, one of the things I always tell people is there's been a lot of growth in this research area, but there's still not that many labs that are really asking these questions. And so it remains a really rich... Domain um, for us to learn about not only these questions about um, kind of the psychobiology of parenting, including fathering, but also, you know, parental health and well being and children's development and how it's linked to some of these physiological changes in their parents.
0: It's, I feel like my husband would have been a perfect kind of study for you, except it's now too late because he's got, you know, a 19 year old, an 11 year old and a five year old. So his age was quite different at each time Mm -hmm. and that shift would have been very different, but I have no idea what happened to his testosterone because we didn't measure it. So,
1: well, I mean, the other thing about that is, and, and this is something, um, one of my collaborators, um, Dr. Stacey Rosenbaum, who'd be another great person for you to have on because she works not only with doing great work with with humans and some of these questions about fathers, um, but also is kind of like the world's leading research on gorilla dads um, who are amazing in their own right. So she'd probably be a really fun interview. Um, But she's led some of our work on what this looks like for men in their thirties and in the Philippines. And one of the things that kind of like your husband is when they're in their 20s, all these guys have young kids. When they're in their 30s, a lot of them have had another child. So they still have young kids, but some of them have kids, their youngest child is 10, right? And the developmental needs and the things that parents bring to the table, including dads, for kids who are 10 or 15 versus newborns is very different. And the, I it just we don't know very much about that either, and the the physiology and the correlates of what's going on with a dad who has a ten year old and a fifteen year old or a college aged, you know, child, um, young person is probably very different, and and you know when they get to be. Did you say you have a nineteen-year-old?
0: My husband, my stepson, okay. yeah, is nineteen. Okay. And it, but it was similar in my house too. Like I'm the oldest, and yeah. it went me. My brother's eight years younger. My sister's fourteen years younger. So, yeah. like, very different yeah. needs at different times of what you're navigating.
1: Yeah, and the I mean, obviously, a lot of this is going to be as they as they become teenagers and young adults. This will look very different in terms of depending on the family. And the cultural context, but I mean, there, testosterone might become less important in terms of some of the social dynamics. But if there's a strong social bond, um, you know, where they're coming into their own as an adult, then systems like oxytocin might become more important. And we just haven't, no one has really explored those questions yet. And I think, I think it's really rich.
0: It's, and I, I do love that there are still questions out there because it is, fast, and I think it's so important for people, like this is something we had kind of talked about before, but it is so important, I think, for people to know what we do know, but also what we don't know. Because mm-hmm. I think there tends to be this overestimation of how much knowledge we have in these fields. And part of why I like talking to researchers is they're very good at being quite nuanced is no, 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 we don't actually know that. No, that's not actually what we took from this. So yeah. I think it's really important. So What does this mean, though? I mean, in terms of what do we know in terms of later fathering? How does this, you know, you talked about in the moment that that lower Mm -hmm. drop leads to more sensitive care, more involvement when they're young. Does this have a longer term effect on this kind of sensitive fathering as, as we've looked at it?
1: I don't think we have a very good grasp on this particularly in terms of these testosterone changes most of and and our work in the philippines now we're they're aging into a demographic where we could start to explore some of these questions you know backtrack to what happened in terms of their testosterone change when they were in their 20s was it linked to them being more involved in child care and then what does that mean for how they're engaging as a fart a father um, when their kids are older, or, you know, what does it look like for their relationship with their partner, which is another, um, you know, core area that I think we're going to chat about. So the short answer is, I think in terms of the empirical evidence for this, we don't have um, a really sound grasp on what this looks like. The one exception would be that R- Ruth Feldman's lab in Israel has just done such Rigorous and elegant work, including following up families longitudinally. Now, again, I mean, she similarly has some cohorts where their kids are starting to get um, substantially older now. And so, you know, she's done really excellent work showing the importance of kind of triadic synchrony and the role of oxytocin. between mothers, fathers, and babies. But then as the kids get older and become more like school-aged, she's done, I think, some of the richest, and she and her lab members have done some of the richest work on what are the relationships between the psychobiological profiles in parents and how does that link up to what you see in their children in terms of oxytocin? And... What are some of the pathways between parents and kids that are driving maybe some of the, the emergence of those patterns in young kids? And then how does that relate to – this is my favorite part of this, which is how does that relate to the young kids' social relationships beyond the family? And so I think I've actually kind of maybe moved off of your question a little bit where I'm, I'm getting to kind of what are the implications for the kids long term but I think Ruth's, I would encourage people to kind of look up um, the Feldman labs work on oxytocin um, and implications for kind of later parenting. Cause I think that's one of the only and richest models we have right now. But I think in in the context of a setting like the United States or in Cebu where there's pretty similar models of, of fathering and family life, what I would predict is that if men are experiencing this decline in testosterone, as it, as they transition to fatherhood, and that's facilitating their involvement in childcare and likely sensitive nurture and childcare. One of the limitations of our data is that we actually only have the quantity of time that men are telling us that they're involved in childcare. And what we know for we know that for the the parent-child relationship and child attachment that sensitive nurture and caregiving is oftentimes really important, although there's, I always am cave- providing the caveat that as an anthropologist, that cross culturally, this I think we need to learn more about how that actually works. And that's again something I'd love to chat a little bit about because I work with some cultural groups in other settings where um, I think the relationship between kids and their dads is different and is not premised on sensitive nurture and childcare. But my point here is decline in testosterone probably helps facilitate more involvement with childcare, likely in a sensitive and nurturant way. And that's building a base for a healthy, you know, father-child relationship going forward. Um, And so maintaining low testosterone long-term as children become five and 10 and 15 may not be particularly important once the base of that foundation is established through those early years. Um, so I think in the context of Cebu, it would wouldn't surprise me at all, or I would actually predict that these early changes in men's testosterone, um, where they're linked to more involvement in childcare, are kind of helping build that secure attachment base for the child, building bonds between fathers and kids, and then that's leading to um, overall kind of healthier trajectories or positive trajectories of relationships between fathers and their kids in that setting.
0: Which leads me to something I think you do want to talk about, which is, as you said, there are cultural variations. There are cultures in which fathers are not involved at a young age. They become involved much later. The relationship is different than what we would see here. So how does, how do we understand, like, as you just said, that early period kind of sets the stage for the relationship to go longer term. How does this look in these cultures where they may not have that? They may not have the drop in testosterone. They're not the sensitive caregiver. Support is provided by a plethora of other people, um, mm-hmm. typically within those cultures. So, therefore, fathers are not the ones. It may be grandmothers, aunts, grandfathers, other people. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that relationship get built then with that? Without that foundation as a baby, what does that longer term look like?
1: so one thing and I'm sure that you get this from other researchers too, is I think we oftentimes want to be careful about stepping beyond our own immediate expertise um, and so you know there's there's folks like Heidi Keller and Judy Messman who have written a lot about the application of attachment theory across cultural contexts um, and how valid is it, and where is it like in what's what are the specifics of how it's valid in terms of the development of caregiver-child relationships across cultures, and where is the, where are the limitations where it's really kind of based on a Euro-American centric idea of what parent-child relationships look like? But there's two. So I work on a project in Republic of the Congo um, in a so that's Congo Brazzaville, and the, we work with two um, smaller-scale subsistence-level societies. Um, and so they're making their living, um, largely off the land. And one of the groups, their neighboring groups, they live in the rainforest. One of them is a farming society. And one of them is, a uh, they at least make part of their living as foragers and foraging from the forest. And the forager group are, are the Bayaka people, um, which are actually very closely related culturally, um, if not culturally synonymous with the Aka, um, people, Um, that are, that live in elsewhere in the Congo basin that have been pretty extensively studied by folks like Barry Hewlett and Hillary Fouts and um, Courtney Meehan. And then the, their neighbors are the, the Bondongo farmers. And part of the reason we initially started working with these groups is because they have incredibly different models of family life and particularly roles of fathers. And we were really interested in, what is it, what are the effects of fathers on their kids if they're a good father in the way that their cultural system values? Um, So rather than thinking about maybe how we define what an involved and committed father looks like, say, in the United States, if we go to other cultural groups, conduct ethnographic research with them, interview um, you know, men and women and try to understand what they value in, in fathers in terms of their roles um, in families and communities. What does that mean for their kids? But also what does it mean in terms of these biological signatures? And so what we see in those two societies, we've looked at testosterone in fathers and um, among the bandongo, they're, they're, the fathers are very invested in their families, but they do not, this. the role of nurture and sensitive caregiver is not theirs. That's not what they do um they are kind of the the moral um heads of households and they're very valued as providers and um it's a very hierarchical society so part of what fathers are doing for their families is kind of carving out space in that status hierarchy which has implications for family well-being but some of what they do in the forest and on the river in terms of acquiring resources for their family is quite dangerous, um, and risky. And it's also a means by which they acquire status. So this is a context in which there's no conflict between the role I play as a father and needing to be kind of a nurturant sensitive father in that role versus, you know, maybe competing for reproductive opportunities, competing for territory resources, etc. Those things are actually kind of melded together. But that competition side of it is what we know is linked to higher testosterone in humans and in lots of other species. And so it's actually the fathers who are seen as the best dads among this um, Bundongo farming community who have the highest testosterone. So rather than lower testosterone being linked to being a better father in that society, it's higher testosterone because of the cultural model of fatherhood. And um, although the, the effect is not, overwhelmingly large. Um, Dads who are better providers do have kids who are in better nutritional and kind of energetic status. So we do see some links there. Um, And then on the flip side, we have um, their neighbors, the Bayaka foragers who are uh, an egalitarian um, society and have fathers are very involved with with taking care of their kids and spending time with them and um, holding them. And doing hands-on caregiving and also are very important teachers as their kids get older. But there's also a cooperative caregiving setting where it's really like a community endeavor to raise kids. And in that group, part of what – so their dads are valued for providing resources to their families. Um, they're also really valued as teachers. So um, the kind of caregiving role that people often talk about in terms of being valuable is that role as, as teachers. But then part of how they envision what makes a good dad is not just, am I bringing resources to my family, but am I sharing resources with others? So it's a very, it's a very different cultural conception of um, what fatherhood looks like compared to their neighbors and compared to the U.S. And in that setting, the dads who are seen as the most generous resource sharers within the community have the lowest testosterone. Um, it's actually similarly, it's also linked to, um, dad's providing. So if they're a better provider, they have lower testosterone. And if they're a better teacher, they have lower testosterone, but the strongest link is with that sharing. So are they generous within the community as part of their role as fathers? And if so, they have, it's correlated to lower testosterone. Um, again, this is cross-sectional work, so we haven't followed them longitudinally. But I'm talking more about kind of cultural variation in in the the way we can envision what an an invested father can look like, and how that might relate to some of these um, psychobiological signatures. But you can imagine that among the Biaka, where dads are spending quite a bit of time with kids, um, and there's a real value placed on generosity and cooperation and things that are intertwined with empathy um, that that sensitive nurturing caregiving is probably a core role of how they form close relationships with their kids and other kids in their community. And then in their, the neighboring group, that's almost certainly not how kids are forming relationships with their dads, at least not when they're little. Um, You know, when they get older, then there's, there's, more involvement as um, men are particularly spending time with boys and kind of helping them learn the skills that they need to be successful in that challenging environment. But I think that that raises important questions about, um, I think one of the, our next phase of that project is actually more focused on kids who are between like from 10 years old up through adolescence And I think something that will be really interesting for us is to actually talk to the kids about their relationships with adults. Um, My hunch would be that many of those kids would feel like they had a close relationship with their fathers and other men, uncles, grandfathers who are involved, who are important parts of their community, even though it's not through the maybe traditional mechanisms of... Um, attachment as we've kind of conceptualized it in settings like the U.S.
0: That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with the rest of the interview with Dr. Lee Gettler. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.